0: So keep on working on this, I'm working hard on this.
1: Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this
0: week. So today, Lou, we're going to devote a whole episode of the podcast to an author that we both really love, Anne Patchett, She's recently released a new book and you're going to talk about that one to start off with. I am. I am indeed. The first book I'm going to talk about
1: is The Dutch House, which was recently published by Harper. I enjoyed this book immensely uh, and I can see why people are hailing it as one of her best books. In the Dutch house, Patchett invites us into the home of Danny Conroy. He's the narrator of the story and his older sister, Maeve. And Maeve is older than Danny by quite a bit, by eight years. And she loves her brother very much and she looks after him. And And we learn that she's done so since he was very young because their mother is no longer with them. Um, they lost her when he was three and they live with their father, um, who's pretty absent from his children's lives, although probably in a way that traditionally men were in the 1950s and 60s, perhaps. The word distant is probably the the best way to describe him, I think. Yes, he's very emotionally absent, isn't he? He is, and particularly from Maeve. Yes. Not so much from the idea of having a son, Mm. but certainly from his daughter. And Maeve herself was traumatised by the loss of their mother. Uh, And indeed, they attribute the shock to causing her to become a diabetic. But it's not surprising that the siblings develop this very close bonds. And I think that this bond is the point upon which the whole book pivots. And it it is just a sort of a testament to Patchett's mastery of familial relationships. Yes. And that makes her such an extraordinary writer, don't you think? Oh, completely. She's just wonderful. She nails it. Mm -hmm. So they live with their father and two very motherly housekeepers, Sandy and Jocelyn, one a cleaner and one's a cook uh, in this beautiful and extraordinary house, although although not conventionally beautiful for its time, but in a suburb Elkins Park on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And the house is referred to by people in the neighbourhood as the Dutch House, not because of its architecture, but we, we find out that it had previously been owned by a Dutch family, a wealthy Dutch family, the Hubeck family who'd made that fortune through the distribution of cigarettes um, from World War I until the Great Depression when everything went pear-shaped. So when Mr Conroy, Cyril Conroy, Danny and Maeve's father, buys the house as a surprise love present for his wife, the Dutch house still has all of the belongings of the Van Hubecks in it. It's really weird, isn't it? The portraits. I know, the (laughs) portraits. You know, the furniture, the artworks. um, The Delft tiles around the mantelpiece. the Delft and the china Mm, as well. mm. The bed linen, the hairbrushes. It's very strange. We don't find out the full circumstances of that, but at the start of the book Danny is seven and Maeve is 15 and very soon into their life and the amazing house sweeps this very polished groomed woman called Andrea and her two little girls Norma and Bright and it's not long before they learn as we do that she will be their new stepmother and things begin to unravel in a spectacular way for Mm. the Conroy children But it's fair to say that as well as the Dutch House being a talking point for all the residents in the suburb of Elkham Park, because it's so distinctive, it becomes sort of all consuming for these siblings. And why I don't want to go into too much detail, I, I do want to refer to something that you said to me last week, which I think is really insightful, Virginia that there are books like The Dutch House where the house becomes so significant it's virtually a character of the
0: book. Yes, yes. I love books like this and it, it struck me that it is an extra character. It's an integral part of the story and there are lots of classics that do this. Mm. There's When you think there's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, Last Night I Dreamt I Went to Mandalay mm. and everything is, is revolves around the... The house, even though it doesn't start at the house. There's Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. There's Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. Um, Nancy Mitford does it in The Pursuit of Love with Alconley. And even when you think about it in a slightly different way, Little House on the Prairie yes. by Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, that house is an integral part of the story. And I can see why writers might be drawn to place their story in a very distinctive house because it really anchors the story in a very definite way for the reader and it creates a very certain and also quite a visual base uh, for the reader as a reference point. And I have read an interview with Anne Patchett where she talks about how much she loves the house that she lives in now with her husband. And I think that might also explain why she's made so much of the house. Because it's so much more
1: than a title, isn't it? With all of these books you've referred to, Mm. you know, and it's almost like the choosing of the name of the house Mm. as the title is a signal. It's a a signal of what's important, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because... The house, to me, adds also to this idea of this book being, certainly in the early chapters, something like a fairy tale. So, you know, there's a motherless boy, a distant father, this big imposing house. And and the evil, wicked stepmother. Exactly, exactly. So, and the watchful eyes of the Van Hubeck family and their portraits looking down on everyone. It's it's got that sort of fairy tale kind of feel to it. Certainly certainly in the first part. So the book opens when Danny is about seven and it's very clever. It drifts backwards and forwards in time. So it alternates between when he was a little younger and then when he's older at boarding school and then at university and then eventually much older still. And like many of... And Patchett's books it spans yes. decades. Yes, and look, this is a very clever device for the construction of this story. I think because what we learn initially is through the eyes and observations of a young boy, and of course you know, facts and information are withheld from young children, or at least they were in past decades, Mm. perhaps not so much now. Mm. So the information that he has about his mother, his impressions of his father, or his memories of certain events, key events that took place when he was younger, that's also what we know. Mm. And then as he gets older and he discovers something new or, you know, that he gets a new perspective about his childhood, we discover it as well. Mm. So it's this sort of slow unravelling yes. or awakening, isn't it? Yes. And his eyes are being slowly opened. And so we gain more clues, basically. Mm. And of course, at the centre of this remains the relationship with his sister and the Dutch house itself. It is an epic story and, you know, which is what she's so adept at. And it's, it's a great, great read. I loved it.
0: Yes. It reminded me in some ways of Commonwealth. And I know you're going to talk about that. It's about a very particular family. And this family is like no other. Yes. And yet there is so much that's universal about it. Yes. And especially the individuals in the family and the way they relate to one another. Yeah, no, I agree. And And it really brought to mind for me Tolstoy's quote at the start of Anna Karenina, All happy families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I'm not sure I agree with the first part of that quote, but I do think there's a lot of truth in the second part. And I think those comments are
1: really, really, I mean, it it absolutely applied to the Dutch House, but even more so for Commonwealth, which we'll talk about in a minute.
0: So what? what, which... And Patchett books have you been reading? So I have a whole stack of them at home because once I had read one, I immediately ordered several more. (laughs) And because I've got too many books on my shelf, I hadn't got to them. So this prompted me to pick up The Magician's Assistant. Yeah which I read this week. So it was published in 1998 and it's surprising how little it's dated in the Mm. the 21 years given the subject matter. Mm. It's still very fresh. So it opens, and this is going to sound like a spoiler, but it's literally the opening scene with a man dying uh, just after having had an MRI at Cedars-Sinai Hospital, no less. And his wife is holding his hand and it's a very dramatic start and it really took me back a bit. And then the story unfolds and the man is revealed to be a dealer in a very exquisite type of imported handcrafted rugs in California. And he was a magician on the side. That was his hobby and his mm part-time job. And the wife, who had been with him at his bedside had been his magician assistant for over 20 years you know getting cut up and levitated and pulled out of chairs and all sorts of clever tricks and she's this incredibly beautiful Mm. woman and she's been in love with him all her life but it it becomes apparent that their marriage was not at all a conventional one and they've only in fact been married for six months It's a complete page turner. The man who died was named Parsifal the Magician and he was gay and he lived with his partner, Fan, who has died of AIDS. Mm. And Sabine is the wife and she's been in love with him all her adult life but she was sort of the third wheel in their relationship and quite happily so. Yes. And so after the shocking scene at the MRI machine, she goes home to this enormous home that they had in Los Angeles and she grieves. And then after about a week or so, their lawyer insists on meeting with her about Parsifal's will. And when the lawyer arrives, he tells her that Parsifal had a living mother and two sisters in Nebraska and that he'd made some provision for them in the will and Parsifal had always told her that he'd grown up in Connecticut, his parents and his only sister had died in a car accident, that he had no family and there had been no communication, nothing. So Sabine, who thought she'd known this love of her life intimately, realises that she knew nothing and it's all been smoke and mirrors. Mm, as a magician Yes, might be. exactly. And then the mother makes contact with Sabine and all sorts of drama unfolds. Mm. And there's something a bit fishy about the mother. She doesn't seem very forthcoming and it seems that there must have been a very good reason for Parsifal to cut off all contact with Mm. his family for the past 25 years. And he's changed his name and he's assumed a completely different identity. I'm not going to say any more about it than that because they would be spoilers, Mm. but it was completely unputdownable. Um, You know, it moves from sunny California to the snowiest, coldest parts of Nebraska And it's just a beautifully told tale of a family. Mm. So I really loved it and I strongly recommend it. It's a Mm. great book. Lovely. Wonderful. Yeah. So what did you think of Commonwealth?
1: Oh, look, you know, I... I know a lot of people are saying that The Dutch House is the best book that Anne Patchett has read, and I absolutely adored it. It was fantastic. But I've just got this thing about Commonwealth. I love this book. Like The Dutch House, it spans many decades, five in this case, and it's the story essentially of two families that become enmeshed forever because of the infidelity of their parents. One father, Bert Cousins, falls in love with another man's wife, Beverly Keating, they marry. And the book charts the impact that this has for many years to come collectively and individually upon the six children of the two marriages. Yeah. So as you've said, you know, Anne Patchett really nails family relationships. You know, she's the queen of family dysfunction. She nails the interactions and the emotions every time with really very little you know, additional language, very little embellishment. It's just such clever, clever writing. And I found myself with, you know, and I've read Commonwealth before and reread it, and I'm I'm going to read it again, because I go over particular sentences, and I read them out loud to myself. Mm -hmm. And I I think, oh, my God, that's such a great sentence. And I had plans of reading out some of those sentences today. But then I realised, It'd just be completely out of context. So, you know, people will have to return to the book themselves. So the story starts out in California, sunny, sunny California, where the oranges are abundant on the trees in backyards everywhere. And there is a party after a christening, the christening of Franny, whose father, Fix, is a policeman. And there is an uninvited guest, and that's Bert Cousins. And he's a district attorney from Fix's precinct. And he turns up with a bottle of gin Uh, And it turns out that Bert is trying to escape the overwhelming domesticity of his own family with four children. And the party deteriorates as everybody gets drunk and fixes wife, Beverly, and the interloper Bert Cousins kiss, and the unravelling of the two families begins. So Bert and Beverly move to the state of Virginia. It's meant to be a be a fresh start, and Beverly's two girls, Caroline and Franny, go with them. But Bert's children, on the other hand, who are Cal, Holly, Jeanette and Albie, they stay with their mother in California until the long summer arrives. Every year, they all head to Virginia. Mm. So they become this sort of gang of six children who don't necessarily like each other, at least initially, but they're sort of united in their dislike of the adults in their lives. Mm. And they become pretty feral over the summer and because there's no supervision. But it, it really rang true to me. I mean, and it will for a lot of people. I mean, I'm not suggesting that I was necessarily feral over the summer as a child, but this idea of long, hot summers, wandering around with little supervision all day, yep. it'll be something that's very mm-hmm. common for people's experiences. And Patchett sort of Juxtaposes the sort of neat, predictable Californian neighborhoods with this sort of the woods of Virginia, which are not really that wild, but they just give the sense of a bit of a jungle and sort of the, the level of freedom that the kids have that they're not normally used to. Mm. And then there's the proverbial soccer punch halfway through the book, uh, something tragic happens. It's not anything particularly evil or unusual. It's just something very ordinary yet utterly tragic happens and then the fallout from that follows them all into their adulthood. I love the idea of the book's title, Commonwealth, mm. and I hadn't appreciated it. I mean, we obviously in Australia refer to yes. us as the Commonwealth of States, but in the US there's four states where, that are known as Commonwealths. Massachusetts, Kentucky, Pennsylvania and... Virginia, yes. where they are, is a Commonwealth. But then I also thought of the kids yeah. as a Commonwealth. Absolutely. Yeah, didn't you? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and then of course there is another Commonwealth in the book, which I'm not going to spoil, mm. but there is a Commonwealth within the Commonwealth. Mm. So it, it's a sensational
0: book. I, I can't talk about it highly mm. enough. Yeah, I loved I, it. I really loved it too. I thought I didn't know much about her personal background when I read that mm. one, and I thought, gee, she really does know she seems to have a really good grasp about these kids sort of banding together. They're not really having anything much in common except that they're united against all their parents mm. and she really nailed it. But I now that I've looked into it more, I can see where that comes from because when she was, uh, I think, six, her mother, who was incredibly beautiful, apparently her parents divorced and her mother married a surgeon And moved the two girls to live with him and he had four children of his Mm, own. So Anne, as a child, became part of a blended family. So she really does have some experience of that different type of family background. And I do find it so interesting what you were saying about her writing, Lou, because I think... The thing about her writing, it's incredibly beautiful, but you don't really notice it. It doesn't get in the way of the story. No, no. So it sort of stays in the background. It, it's not. It's not show No. It's not self conscious or flowery. But it's, it's not perfect, saying, "Look at me," isn't it's it? Perfect. Yeah. And she is a true storyteller. She's all about the story rather than showcasing. Look at my clever no, use of words. Absolutely. It's exactly the words yep. that you require, no more, yeah, and no less. I agree, and it's beautiful. Yep. which is why I just kept re- yeah reading it over and, and over it's again. it's also kind. Yes, it's it is. not. it's yeah. not a lot of nastiness or. Oh, it's gentle. I think yes. that's probably yes. a better word. Yes. Um, I get the impression that she would be a, a gentle person. I, I think she's wonderful and wise. Very wise, Mm. very insightful. Mm. The first one that I ever read was State of Wonder, which was written in 2011. And I was just blown away by her writing and her storytelling. It's very reminiscent of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, Mm. which is a real favourite of mine. So it opens in the first sentence with a death. There's an American drug company and many years ago they've sent a woman scientist into the depths of the Amazon jungle because she's found the secret to preserving women's Mm -hmm. fertility indefinitely. And she's been in the jungle at the base camp but she has stopped reporting in and she hasn't made contact for quite some time and she's not doing what she's supposed to do. So the drug company has sent in Anders Ekman to find her, one of their executives. And the story starts with an aerogram arriving at the drug company reporting that Anders is dead. And the drug company decides to send in Marina, who's a doctor, who's one of Anda's work colleagues, to verify this, because I I think they, from memory, they're not entirely sure that they believe that he's dead, and to find out what this scientist is up to, because she seems to have gone rogue. She's on some Amazonian tributary, Mm. only accessible by very treacherous canoe trips. Marina heads off to Brazil and the company give her this very special GPS phone to make contact from the depths of the jungle and she arrives at the airport and her luggage does not arrive. So the phone is gone and the reader starts having a feeling of impending doom Mm. So she heads out into the middle of Brazil to Manaus and it's been arranged that she'll meet the people that are living in this missing scientist's city flat and they turn out to be a slightly suspicious Australian couple. They're slightly odd surfies And then she ventures off on a boat into the depths of the Amazon River to try and find a scientist who does not want to be found, to verify whether Anders is really dead and to try and bring both of them back to America. And she has a guide who seems great on the surface, but you start to have doubts about him and where his loyalties might lie. Uh, so it's completely gripping. Mm. And I really loved the homage to Joseph Conrad and the gradual stripping away of the societal niceties. Yes, the humanity almost. Yes. Yeah. The further the characters go down the river, more is stripped away and the depths of the jungle really do bring out the more atavistic mm. side of human nature. So she's done an excellent job with And this, this one sounds a bit more mystery. I mean, I think all of her
1: family books are mysteries as well. There's yes. always a mystery yes. there's always yes. something Secrets there or, but yeah. this one sort of seems to have that,
0: embraced that embrace that a bit mm. more yes because there are some good revelations and you mm. you have no idea what's coming mm. so i loved that one so having read that one i then had to read bel canto yes. Um, which is written in 2001, and it's also fantastic. It's set in a South American country at the home of the vice president and there's an extravagant birthday party being held and an opera singer has been performing when suddenly a group of terrorists with guns break in and hold everyone in the room hostage. And what unfolds after that is just riveting, She reveals a very wise, as you say, insight into human beings and her depiction of the relationship between the guests and the terrorists are particularly well done in this one. So I I would also highly recommend that one. I thought it was wonderful. She often creates environments, I was thinking about this last night, where they're either an actual hostage situation, as in Belcanto, or an ostensible hostage relationship where people who are complete strangers are thrown together and they're forced to be together. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so in State of Wonder, Marina, the scientist, she's thrown together with her guide. Mm. She's then thrown together with people at the base camp in the middle of the jungle. So they're sort of ransomed to the circumstances. Yes, and they've got to make the best of it. Yeah, Magician's assistant, um, Sabine, is inevitably stuck in this snowbound house in nebraska with this mm. family that she knew nothing about for mm. 25 years and the kids in the commonwealth and are the kids all in the commonwealth are all um, thrown ba- together bound together mm. and what it's all about what they make of it and how they interact and what their interests are and mm. uh, what the payoff is and that sort of thing and so, that sort of
1: individual response versus the collective in the group yeah, yeah.
0: fascinating yeah It shows a very clever insight, I think, that she has into probably her own experience as a child. She's married to a surgeon. She lives in Nashville and there was no bookshop in the town where she lives. So she and her business partner decided to start one. So she owns, part owns Parnassus Books. I don't think Mm. she has a very hands-on role, but... I think she's there reasonably often, but it's just such a wonderful thing to think, well, there's no bookshop here, so I'm just going to start with Yeah, one. fantastic. And I think she might have even started a second one at the airport as well. So her books often start with a very dramatic event, and then they curl back a bit and fill in a bit of the backstory, and then yes. they sort of press on forward. Yes. yeah. So that it sort of takes the reader yes. with some... You're some, still um, propelled... Forwards, Yes.
1: But often the manner of you gathering yes. the, the story is not necessarily conventional, is that You return mm. to pick up some more facts and then you yes, move forward again. And I think
0: again. because she creates such a dramatic beginning, you're in, mm. you're, you know, you've mm. bought in your, you really want to know, well, what on earth is going to happen now or why did that happen mm. or... And
1: that's actually life, isn't it? because yeah. you it's not that linear that how you gain knowledge or your experience is to return and exactly revisit facts. Yeah, no, that's exactly right.
0: What else have you been diving into lately, Lou? Well, I thought I
1: might mention a few things from our virtual mailbag. Oh, yes. So a friend of the podcast Kim, Um, has recommended a podcast which I've been listening to this week. Now, quite possibly, many of our listeners have known about this podcast and have been listening to it for years because it's been around since 2013. So I am quite possibly the last person on the planet (laughs) to listen to it, but it it did completely pass me by. And it's Here's the Thing, hosted by Alec Baldwin. And he interviews a range of different performers and politicians and actors and policymakers, etc. Now, I have to admit, I haven't always been a huge fan of Alec Baldwin. Me either. But I saw him a while ago on an episode of Jerry Seinfeld's Netflix series, Comedians in Cars Drinking Coffee, which is a very charming Mm. Netflix series. Jerry picks up his chosen comedian in a beautiful, Mm. usually a vintage car, and he takes them to a neighbourhood coffee shop and they sort of talk about their comedy journey. And I saw Baldwin twice on that show, and he, he was really impressive. Mm. Like, he's a really intelligent guy who speaks, who he thinks He's quite very, reflective, he's, isn't he? He's very reflective, yeah. Virginia. And he kind of thinks very deeply about life mm. and stuff. And I think he's the eldest of six children. Mm. Um, and his father
0: died at 55 when yes. he was quite young. And, and he, he was, was a school, school teacher, wasn't he? He was a school oh, I'm teacher, not sure. I think, a history mm. teacher,
1: I think. Those character traits about him, that's reflected in this podcast. Here's the Thing, because, you know, he brings a depth to his questions and to the discussion with guests. And, look, it's a cracker. I absolutely love it. I mean, I am going through picking certain guests that I want to listen to, but actually, you know, what's great is to challenge yourself Mm. and listen to an interview with someone that you've never heard of. And, And so thank you very much, Kim. That has really brightened my week. And then, Virginia, we also heard this week from a listener who really appreciated your discussion of whistleblowers in episode Ah. two. You referred to the documentary about the Cambridge Analytica Group.
0: Gosh, yes.
1: And it has completely blown up. It's very timely, obviously, in the US with the whistleblowers in relation to
0: the Mm, president's mm.
1: communications with the president of Ukraine. And then, of course, in Australia, it's related to this sort of new campaign, hashtag your right to know, which is fascinating because on the 21st of October, all of the major newspapers in Australia banded together to censor their front pages, Mm. you know, which obviously... Not everything to do with hashtag your right to know relates to whistleblowers, but it does relate to the, this idea that there are secrets and information that is being kept yes. from us, allegedly by the government. So, yes. you know, it's, it's right on trend. And I also read in the Australian newspaper yesterday a report by the journalist Hadley Thomas, and he was remembering what happened to him in 2005 when he was approached by a nurse, Tony Hoffman, Uh, And she Uh. was the whistleblower in the case of Dr. Giant Patel. Yep. Now Patel had become the director of surgery in Queensland's Bundaberg Hospital where various things happened to patients but he had already been struck off by New York State roster of physicians for gross negligence and he lied to the Medical Board of Queensland and to the health department to get his very senior role and ultimately, you know, it was the courage of this nurse Mm. and also Headley's reporting that led to the Davis
0: public inquiry into health in Queensland. Do you remember seeing the Australian? Story episode about her. About her, yes. Um, yes, I do. It was such no. an insight into the bullying that she received and the toll it took on her mm. physical and mental health. Mm. I had so much empathy and so much admiration for her. Yeah,
1: because at the time, I mean, there were apparently theatre nurses and plenty of people who were concerned, but for
0: her to stand up to, against the director of the hospital and yes. to say... Because he was achieving great outcomes he in was, terms of he was. numbers of operations. Yeah, he was. So he was, was a, very pro-surgery, wasn't he? And yes, he said and it was, he was making money for the hospital. Yeah, yeah. So he was, you know, achieving all the deliverables yes. and all the benchmarks and, and exceeding them. And so yeah. the hospital did not want to rock the boat. They wanted to keep him there because they were able to advertise that, you know, they were conducting X number of operations per quarter or whatever. Mm. And so they really tried to shut her down. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's awful. um, uh, Look, I think it's interesting and, and ultimately, you know, there's no point going into, you know, what happened with the various court cases and things. But, you know, certainly the Davis Commission of Inquiry did confirm that there was a culture of secrecy and a culture of ostracization of whistleblowers, Mm. which of course is what we're talking about these days as well. So what else have you been blowing? Um, What else have you been blowing into?
0: (laughs) Okay, we might strike that. What else have you been diving into, Virginia? Don't make me laugh, Lou. (laughs) I have been reading The Water Dancer by Ta Nahisi Coates. Which you bought me in New York, a signed copy, no less, and it is completely wonderful. I just loved every page. I had to read it very slowly and carefully because the language is very traditional. He's written it using the language as they spoke in those times. Which are what? Because I, I have I've Slavery in Virginia. Yes. And so they're African-American slaves I don't want to say too much, nope. but it's about nope. the Underground Railroad that mm. uh, managed to get a lot of slaves out of the South mm. and into the North. It's gripping and beautifully written, and a bit mystical. It's got some uh, spiritual and it's got some magical, magical realism. realism it's yeah. Just, it's completely divine. And he also plants these little clues as to f- future plot and they're sort of hidden in plain sight and so you have to read quite slowly to pick up on what's coming because the graph of the novel is sort of very up and down. You know, things would go well for the main character and you'd just start to relax and think, oh, you know, things are going okay and then, boom, it would all fall apart and so you, you could never really completely relax which was exactly, I imagine, what it must have been like for the slaves at that time and it's just unthinkable. Um, some of the stuff that went on because it's not just the concept of owning another person that's so repellent, but it's what they did to them in order to keep them oppressed. And it's really pretty awful, but it's a really beautifully written book. It's Just wonderful. It has been interesting to me, though, to reflect on marketing in publishing throughout the reading of this because I started it not long after Oprah had announced that she was resurrecting her book club and this was going to be the book. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll follow along. And I started following her book club Instagram account. And, of course, this is Oprah, and I love what she's done and continues to do, really, with encouraging people to read books. So, frankly, she can pretty much do whatever she wants yeah. in, yeah. in the many respects. her impact is immense, yeah. isn't it? it's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But, and there is a but, I think that her publicising of The Water Dancer has been a bit too much. Yeah,
1: I agree.
0: I, I was starting to become a little bit annoyed by it, and it also made me feel that I was behind all the yes. time because she was talking about things that I wasn't up yeah. to. So read this chapter by this time. Yes. And read- And And what do you think about this character? And I I hadn't got to that point yet. And then she, whoever it was who's running her Instagram account, revealed a huge spoiler and posted a big photo saying, did you expect... X's, treachery, question mark. And then, you know, hundreds of people, you know, and I hadn't got to that that point yet. So I had to quickly unfollow and um, I haven't started refollowing. So I imagine that marketing experts would say you can never have too much exposure, but I actually think maybe you can, Yes, having watched what's happened with this, because there's sort of a critical point that's reached where everyone buys in. And then after that, it can start to have a counteractive effect where you get a bit sick of having it rammed down your throat.
1: And look, I agree with you. It's absolutely wonderful what she's doing to promote reading. And you you don't want to be negative about anything to do with that. It's just phenomenal. But you're right. It's unrealistic that everybody can stay with the program and... Read exactly when she wants you to read, and and I. So yeah, I. It it did jar a little bit for me as well. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be interesting. It might be something we talk about in future episodes because you are reading the book, and I have downloaded the audio of the book, yeah. which is read by a, quite a well-known American actor. And it'll be quite interesting to see how our different experiences yes. are of the book. I don't often do the audio route, mm, but I am with. I will this be intrigued one. to see how so you we find might, it we because.
0: Might. And whether you have to go slowly to yes. catch everything. Yes. So um, it's, I imagine it's not going to be something you can do other things while you're yes, listening. which well, I might be often wrong. do
1: with audio. Mm, me yeah. too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'll be, I'm very keen to talk to you about that one when you finished it. I thought it was wonderful. And I can see why she chose it. It's quite outstanding. And the other thing that I have been um, listening to quite a bit lately, and it's one that you put me onto, is the podcast The Daily.
1: With Michael Bombaro. I'm
0: Michael Bombaro. <laughs> <laughs> I just love him. So he is at the New York Times. He's the front man for a huge team of people that put it together and it's very professional. Mm, it is, isn't it? But I really like him. Mm. I think he is very measured. He draws you in, doesn't He's he? He's a with great his... sort of cipher for the story. He's sort of the great middle man. He's sort of the intermediary between... Mm. Uh, whoever it is who's been reporting on whatever drama's unfolding mm. in uh, Washington, and the listener. So I think he's fantastic. I love the music. mm um, and the content's fabulous,
1: and don't you love that little section he does at the end? So he does a main story, and then at mm. the end he has the other things you need to know this Here's week. Here's
0: what you need to know today. And it's just yeah, yeah, yeah. fabulous! Yeah, I, just lo- fabulous. I love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. Yeah, no, it's so I would recommend that to anyone who hasn't discovered that one because it's only one perspective, but it's a really great little window into what's happening in, say, American politics, and, and occasionally yeah. other and it's things. daily, so
1: it's sort of like a snippet, mm. isn't it? Mm. So it kind of brings you up to date yep. instantly with, yep. as you say, one perspective. Yep. But yeah, no, it's great. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at divingunderscoreinunderscorepodcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us because that will mean we can grow our audience.
0: Breaking up, up, working it, diving in. Breaking up, up, working
1: it, diving in. What else have you been blowing into? (laughs) Okay, we might strike that. What else have you been diving into? (laughs) Okay.